Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Well, it is the Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly. In for Brian Kilmeade, you'll find me at Talk Radio Joe. And as uh, there's been so many phenomenal uh, guest hosts for Brian when he has been on his uh, his well-earned, well-deserved break. But I believe that I am the only fill-in host coming to you live from the Florida Freedom Zone. Uh, we uh, enjoy living here in Florida where today it is going to be sunny and 85 I'm sorry. I think the meteorologist actually said 84. I was rounding up to 85. It's going to be 84 and sunny uh, in Orlando, Florida today. We've got a bowl game here later this afternoon at the at Camping World Stadium. It's going to be the Cheez-It Bowl at Camping World Stadium. Clemson Tigers versus the Iowa State Cyclones. That's a 5.45 p.m. game. At least at last check, that bowl game is still happening. I, we don't have any COVID cancellations, to my knowledge, on that game. Again, my name is Joe Kelly, coming to you from WDBO Radio in Orlando. We are uh, Brian's flagship station here in Orlando, Florida. Uh, of course, we've got Pete and Eric along with us that help make the show go smoothly. You can join at any point at 866-408-7669. You can get details when you go to com. I feel like at the beginning of any discussion like this, I've got to start with my COVID status, right? I, I, I feel like there's there there are elements where I never know. And I'll give an example. I was in church uh, on Christmas Eve, beautiful Christmas Eve service. And when the church pastor gets to that po- point where he's like, let's greet everybody else in in the congregation – I don't know how to greet people because I don't know how they wish to be greeted. I try to be courteous to people and treat them as they wish to be treated in this in this era of the COVID pandemic. And so there's there's a part of me that wishes that we could wear a button that says, you know what, I'm totally okay shaking hands. I'm okay not wearing a mask. I'm okay. But then of course you get into identifying yourself and and IDs, uh, and that just smacks a little bit too much of of a fascist state where you have to have you know papers and, and everything else on like that. But uh, I, I will confess my COVID status to you. I I am not anti-vaccine. I am pretty much anti-mandate, but not anti-vaccine. I did get the the Moderna double shot vaccine. Glad that I did. Uh, have not had a booster, but I did have a breakthrough case. Uh, I was diagnosed with COVID. Even you know this would be weeks, weeks, months, even after getting the the COVID vaccine. But because I live in Florida and because we have other options available to us, and you've heard Brian talking about this, uh, but we have monoclonal antibodies available to us here in Florida. At least we did. I know that the Biden administration was talking about rationing that, even though it seems to work really, really well. I don't want to give medical advice per se on the radio. Uh, but when I was when I was diagnosed, I, I am I am the person you hear about in the news 
that is immunocompromised. I had uh, Hodgkin's disease, stage four cancer when I was a teenager. I uh, have a chronic leukemia at the moment. So I, I mean, I, I am the walking embodiment of immunocompromised. So I have to take extra precautions uh, if I'm going to be out, you know, doing things. And part of the extra precautions for me is getting the vaccine. And in my case, I didn't even have to really ponder it very long. My doctor actually called me uh, at the outset of this and said, hey, we've got the vaccine in our office. Why don't you come in and get it? And of course, I said, yeah, uh, I will I will be right in as we get more and more information about the the boosters as Israel is now looking at their fourth booster. And now doctors are saying, wait a minute, the more boosters, the more vaccines you get, the less your body is able to actually fight off the infection on its own. So I, I wonder if there's a whole lot of us that started out thinking, yeah, OK, vaccine, good idea. I'm down for the vaccine. Uh, only to realize, man, we're gonna. How many shots are we gonna have to get now? I mean, we're gonna get three shots, four, five. Uh, if if these things don't actually stop the coronavirus from spreading, and in my case, my symptoms were mild, uh, and I'm certain my symptoms were mild because I got the vaccine. I'm certain of that. And the the day I tested positive was the day I went down and got the monoclonal antibodies here in in Orlando. Uh, speaking about the the bowl game today, they they had set it up in the parking lot of Camping World Stadium, and we just you know drive up. You make an appointment, you drive up, you hop out of your car, you you go into a little portable room, and there are nurses that are standing by. And for the monoclonal antibodies, it was four shots, one in each arm and two in your in your belly. And by that afternoon, so I went first thing in the morning, and by that afternoon, the mild symptoms I had were completely gone. And I felt fantastic by the next day. This, again, coming from a guy who's immunocompromised, and theoretically, this this should have, would have otherwise devastated me, uh, but it was really nothing. And then <laughs> my my wife, I clearly gave her <laughs> the coronavirus. I'm so generous. I gave my wife COVID, but because she is not Im- immunocompromised, she chose to not go get the monoclonal antibodies. All right. So that was her choice. And she was sick for days, days and days, body aches and not feeling good and a fever and the congestion and everything else. And I finally said, look, I know that you're not immunocompromised, but it's at least in Florida, it's free. You can go down and get the monoclonal antibodies and you're going to feel better the next day. And I finally five days into it for her, I convinced her and she went down and got the monoclonal antibodies. And she, too, by that afternoon, her symptoms were gone just completely gone. I'm, so I'm, I am, I'm sold on the monoclonal antibodies that, that we get here in the Florida Freedom Zone. Uh, I don't know to what extent they are now still available, given, as I said, that uh, President Biden had, had kind of pulled back on that and started rationing those to the states. I see that Texas, Governor Abbott out in Texas, uh, they are out of monoclonal antibodies in Texas, and they're waiting for their next shipment from the federal government. I'm sure politics plays no part in that whatsoever, right? One hopes. Um, so I, 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 that's it. My, that's my COVID story. I, I had COVID, had mild symptoms, and was out from work for about five days, six days, and then back, back behind the microphone once again here at WDBO in Orlando. 
You can join with uh, with your COVID stories at 866-408-7669. I'll tell you, it's the week between Christmas and New Year's. We're gonna we're gonna get into some 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 lighter fair discussions. We're gonna talk about movies a little bit later on. Uh, we've got some some important stuff we're gonna get into this hour. We're gonna talk to uh, Florida's Senator Rick Scott who, of course, is a former governor here of Florida as well, and we'll talk more about what we're doing here in Florida that is different from what so much of the rest of the United States is doing. This is we're seeing. I mean, we're seeing the same thing here in Orlando that most of the rest of the nation is seeing right now, and that is incredibly long lines to get the uh, COVID tests, shorter lines to get the vaccines. But everybody is lining up right now to get a COVID test, which if you're if you're asymptomatic, if you don't have symptoms, I and and you're not traveling somewhere, and you don't need to have a negative test to be able to travel or go to work or whatever the case may be, I don't understand why people would go and get tests. And here is part of why I don't trust the numbers when it comes to the coronavirus, is because when I came down with it, I. I swab my nose with an at-home test, which are hard to find now. But I swabbed my nose with an at-home test, and so did my wife. Never went to a hospital, never went to a doctor, never got counted in any kind of COVID score. How many of us have been exactly the same? How many of us have, have think we got it? And I've had so many discussions just in the last day with people and asking, hey, have you had COVID? I'm, I'm curious. And so many people say, well, I think I did. I'm, I'm pretty sure I did. And you know what? They may be right, or they may have just had a, a common cold. But either way, how do we trust the numbers when so many people don't report it? They don't, they don't go to the doctor. They don't get counted uh, in, in that big head count like that. I, I find it very hard to trust the numbers. And then we have the mixed messages that we get from Dr. Anthony Fauci, from the CDC, when you know, we're told that 73% of the cases in America are the Omicron variant, only for the CDC two days later, day and a half later, to say, oh, yeah, it's not that high. It's like 23%. How do we believe that number? How do we believe any of this? I mean, I, I have hit a point where my skepticism is at an all-time high. I, I, it's, it's not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I just, I'm at a point where I just take everything so skeptical. And some of those people early on, you know, the people that were early on getting banned on Facebook, they were getting deplatformed on YouTube for their comments about the about the vaccine not actually stopping the spread of COVID, all those people that got banned, proven to be right. I don't imagine that YouTube and Facebook will be apologizing to all those people. Uh, so they'll be waiting a long time for an apology there. Uh, but it's just, it's these days. And regrettably, the lack of trust that we have as, as an American society for our governmental and healthcare leaders bleeds into the media. And I, I regret that as a member of the media uh, because it, it, it besmirches us. And we already are having a hard time as it is anyway. I mean, some of, the, some of the hatred that we get in the media is earned. Some of it is absolutely not earned. Uh, but when, when we have people like Dr. Fauci or the CDC 
giving out information. We reported as members of the media only to find out that they had it dead wrong, which means we had it dead wrong. So as as we cannot trust our elected leaders, I mean, poll after poll says you can't trust that the American people don't trust Joe Biden. They don't trust Anthony Fauci. They don't trust the CDC, the FDA. We don't trust them, but it is us, the media, who reports on their nonsense, at times nonsense. At times they do make sense. At times it's utter nonsense, and it, it makes everybody look bad if they could just get their act together. We would want nothing more than a president and a, and a medical leader like a Dr. Fauci that had high trust, a high rate of trust for the American people. Is there anything besides resigning that President Biden could do or Anthony Fauci could do that would earn your trust? The only thing I can think of is resigning. Because and, and every time I hear Dr. Fauci, I, I, I just sit back and think, is this going to get corrected tomorrow? Is this something that we're going to hear more about in the day ahead and, and there's going to be a problem with it? That's, that's my concern always. And, I, and, and reporting it, I feel like I have to couch it that way, saying, well, at least here's what Dr. Fauci is saying today. Here's what the CDC, here's what Biden says today. And when President Biden dropped that last bomb before he uh, went to Delaware for the extended uh, holiday week, and he said there was no federal solution to COVID and it's up for the states. How many people just batted their eyes thinking, wait, what What did he just say? Was he not trying to convince us all this time that there was a federal plan at work? You can join us at 866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly. Your phone call's coming up. We're also going to check in with uh, Senator Rick Scott. We're going to talk to Rich Lowry, the editor of the National Review. Uh, that is going to be coming up in a few minutes, and we're going to really uh, dig into there. there's no federal plan here for COVID. We'll get into that with Rich Lowry coming up at the bottom of the hour. I'm Joe Kelly. You are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Questioning everything. everything. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So it just makes sense if you keep them out for five days keep them isolated for five days, then get them back doing their job, doing their work, keeping a mask on to protecting themselves from, from infecting other individuals. So I don't think it's confusing. I think it's a rather crisp recommendation. 
I, you know, I think it's confusing for a lot of Americans because we don't understand why we suddenly had a change from a 10-day quarantine to a five-day quarantine. And now as we you know, learn more about it, it has so much less to do with science and medicine and so much more to do with the, the corporate America needing employees to get back into the office once again. Yeah, I'm Joe Kelly. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. You can join us right now at 866-408-7669. Let's jump to the phones. Uh, we'll go to Utica, uh, New York, where Neil is joining us here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Neil. Good morning. Thanks for joining How's us. How's everything going for you? Very good, thanks. What's on your mind? Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm 70. Okay. I'm in excellent physical condition, excellent health. And I, I got spiked in uh, March with the Johnson & Johnson. Got it. And beginning of October, I got COVID. And uh, it, was, it was no more bothersome than a, than a mild cold to medium cold. Yeah, and that's how mine was. Neil, I'm curious. Did uh, when I was home with COVID, I will tell you that I was I was confused. Not because of the COVID. I was confused because I didn't. I did. I struggled with what the protocol was supposed to be. Did you find yourself, well, even though your symptoms were mild, like mine were, it, it it it's it was surprising to me that there wasn't a punch list of do this that this that and this and that is how you get back to work or that's how you get back to school or whatever it just seemed that everybody i asked i'm like well when do we get to go back to work when can i do this when what do i have to do nobody had answers well you know something i pretty much knew is uh what the protocols were for quarantine um i didn't know i had it initially until I had the same, these symptoms were the same symptoms I had between uh, um, uh, December of 2019 and January of 2020. The exact same symptoms. And have and, you um, have you gone to get a booster, Neil? No, and I'm not going to get. I'm not. I'm done with these. I'm done with this crazy crap. You know? <laughs> that's, that's, I'm not getting a booster. Honestly, I know that's exactly Neil. You you have just embodied exactly how I feel. I'm I am so done with this. Neil, thank you so much for calling. Let's go to Lewis in York, Pennsylvania. Hey, Lewis, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi, uh, actually, it's Bruce from York, Pennsylvania. Got it. Um, that's okay. I happen to be on the ski slope going up the lift right now at Ski Round Top. No kidding. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm serious as a heart attack. So um, I wanted I I talked to your interceptor man, I or your you know the caller man. Yeah, the caller man. Him, the caller man. Thank no, you. I heard you right. And I asked him a question. I said I do have a very good COVID story, but I also wanted to bring up something that was unrelated to a segue, really really quick, and then I'll go to my my COVID story because nobody has ever talked about this on the internet or any radio station ever in history I've ever heard. And yeah, that is so Bruce, and, that, and then I'll get Yeah. Yeah, you're just not going to have time I'm afraid. You uh, but I appreciate you checking in. We were up against a hard break here and the clock is what the clock is. I'm glad you're enjoying your time uh, out there skiing. It is sunny and it's going to be 84 in Orlando. We're broadcasting from the Florida Freedom Zone. I'm Joe Kelly. This is the Brian Kilmeade show. We'll continue straight ahead. We'll be right back. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. show like no other it's brian kilmeade look there is no federal solution this gets solved at a state level i'm looking at governor sununu on the board here he talks about that a lot and it ultimately gets down to where the rubber meets the road that is the the president biden with his comment about no federal solution honestly if you would have told me if you would have just said to me, hey, uh, President Biden just announced that there's no federal solution for COVID and it's up to the states to deal with this. I, if you would have said that to me, I would have said, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. Really? President Biden just said that? And yes, he, in fact, did say that. I want to bring in Rich Lowry. He's the editor of the National Review. He's the author of The Case for Nationalism. Rich, good morning. Thank you for joining us here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, of course. How's it going? Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, happy new year to you. I I was really surprised to hear President Biden say that and I and I have to wonder if that was an unplanned unscripted comment that just came out of the president's mouth, but what was your take? I think it was uh, just something that came out of his mouth. He was talking to governors, so you you tend to be def- deferential um in that context if you're president, but still just for a year solid. This was one of the main criticisms of Donald Trump was that he he hadn't nationalized the response enough. And they, they, they talked to the Trump people about this, and they would say, well, first of all, there's no authority for the federal government just to take over everything. Two, you want to rely on the supply chains that already exist. There's no way for the government to easily replicate, you know, what the makers of PP. P, PPE and all the rest are doing, and and two, the, the states know more about their local conditions. So this kind of decentralized approach, it's, it's the strength of our system, and we're going to work with it, which was entirely reasonable, in fact, correct, but they're slammed for it repeatedly, including by Ron Klain, who's now the president's, uh, Biden's chief of staff, and of course by Biden himself. I mean, we really do have the the perfect lab experiment where we could have 50 different states handling this in 50 different Mm -hmm. ways and find out which one of these ways works the best. Here in Florida, I mean, we've done pretty well. We're certainly seeing a big spike right now in the number of people wanting to get tests, just like everybody else in the United States, uh, but probably due to uh, travel concerns. They need to get tests before they go on a vacation somewhere, before they travel uh, and and of course, with the spread of the Omicron variant, which is not very severe. Yeah, so I mean, Florida is a great example. Uh, DeSantis from the beginning had a, a different approach, centered on really protecting vulnerable people in 
nursing homes and assisted living facilities, and then, then otherwise realizing that lockdowns and mandates, they have downsides, and you need to be cognizant of those and strike a balance. And, of course, he was denounced as a quasi-murderer for, for a year and a half. But lo and behold, now you, now you have a lot of Democrats, including Biden, saying we don't need to shut down again, we don't need to close down the schools, and we, we need to try to get on with, with our, our normal life, which is something DeSantis and other red state governors were saying for, for a long time and were smeared over it. Rich, can we talk about uh, – we're talking to Rich Lowry. He's the editor of the National Review. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly. It's at Talk Radio Joe. Let's talk, Rich, for a moment about trust. So we've seen, we've seen polling data that says the American people generally don't trust Joe Biden on COVID. They don't trust Anthony Fauci on COVID. If we don't trust these leaders when they come out with these statements about shortening the quarantine from 10 days to five and we're going to need a booster and mandate this and face mask that, how are we, the, the common unwashed masses, the United States citizens, how are we to interpret that if we can't trust or don't trust the people that are in charge of making these decisions? Yeah, this has been a key theme of the pandemic all along, is that the public health bureaucracy, one, has made mistakes. You know, they're they're human, but very often hasn't been willing to admit their mistakes. Two, has tried to kind of game the public with its advice. You know, we saw this very early on with the the initial – take on masks, which don't wear them, they're worthless because, you know, they want to preserve them for medical professionals, fine, but just say that, just, just say we want to try to save them for medical professionals, don't try to play people. And then this, this arbitrary and shifting uh, guidance, you know, which is the latest example is the change in the quarantine, like, why? Why? I mean, they, they want to get workers back faster, which is an important goal, but is really that's the, that's the medicine and science has changed around that. So th- this is just a big problem. And, you know, we're also – we're a big, diverse continental country, and with a, not a lot of trust in our institutions or, or the, other, the other guys in charge. Um, so we, we're just not going to be like a Scandinavian country where everyone just salutes and, and the advice they get from the medical uh, bureaucracy and says, okay, that's what we're going to do. So, I, I mean, you just got to figure it out for yourself. What level of risk are you willing to take and what do you feel comfortable with and act accordingly? And you should be free to act accordingly. And Rich, you know, I mentioned the, the 50 different laboratories we have here in the United States, but this, as you well know, is a global uh, pandemic and there's more than just 50 labs. I mean, we've got, you know, 200 some odd countries around the around the world that are coming up with their own systems. Uh, Israel right now talking about a fourth booster. Are there other nations that we should be watching to see how they do it that is a good forecaster for what we're going to have? And are there other nations who are just doing this better than we are? You know, Joe, it's, it's just hard to say. You know, I, I think the, the key thing that everyone kind of forgets is the virus has a huge say. And no matter what approach any country has taken, it's gotten hit. At some point, every country that's been held up a model for this or that reason has gotten hit, and that's just the the fundamental issue. You know, did did uh, Trump cause uh, Delta or Biden cause Delta? No. Did Ron DeSantis cause Delta? No. It slammed you know the South because of the the seasonality and and the South is more vulnerable in the summer months, and this terrible variant came. You know, is, is uh, are the governors in the Northeast responsible for Omicron? No. You know, it's it's the virus. That has a huge say here. And just hopefully 
Omicron is is a sign that that we're beginning to get to an end here. It'll outcompete Delta. Hopefully, it's milder uh, and it's the severity of its illness, and hopefully, it provides natural immunity. And and you know, by the spring, we're really back to normal. But you know, I've said that before. I said that last year, and it didn't happen. <laughs> right. I'm still. I've, I've still got the whole 15 days to flatten the curve stuck in my yeah, head. Exactly. It just keeps yeah. ringing through my head, and we're now getting ready to go into our third year of of living yeah. with COVID. And is that is that what it comes down to? I mean, is this yes. simply a matter of we've got to find a way to live with it? And if that's the case, I would go back to saying that Governor DeSantis uh, here in Florida has made it pretty easy for us to live with the pandemic. Yeah. So I just my, my friends who live in Florida or travel to Florida just like it's been it's been different the entire time. There's yeah. just been a sense of freedom there that you haven't haven't had in the rest of the country. And I think living with COVID is the key phrase. The flattening the curve, everyone forgets. You know, it's now it's kind of a, a phrase of mockery, but it was based just on spreading out infections. So you didn't have hospitals overwhelmed, and there was some threat of that initially. In the Northeast, but then it kind of shifted into this zero COVID mentality, and that was always too ab- absolutist, too unrealistic, and too costly. Uh, you just you're not you're not going to stop people from getting in- infected, and and now everyone realizes that. You know, you have all these liberal commentators saying, "Well, cases don't matter." You know, if 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 you're young and healthy and, and vaccinated, it's probably not a threat to you, so we shouldn't obsess with cases. Well, people on the right have been making that, that argument for a year or more, and again, have been you know, called reckless and horrible people for it. Because if cases don't matter, what does matter is hospitalizations. As you alluded, that's the whole point of the 15 days to flatten the curve. Yeah, so you, you want people uh, not to get really sick, and we have a means of doing that, the, the vaccines. And I know there's some skepticism about the vaccines. They were oversold initially. You know, had Biden and others, I thought this, uh, think it would just stop you from getting infected. That's that's obviously not the case. I, I, I had COVID uh, a week or so ago. I'm vaccinated and boosted. And and pretty much everyone I know who has COVID at the moment is, is vaccinated. So it's not a, a total protection, but it, it does – uh, mitigate the, the worst effects, and that that's kind of the, the most you can you can ask for. And if you get the vaccines, get natural immunity, get slightly milder versions of COVID, then it, it should fade into the, the woodwork, uh, like the the common flu, which is a threat. You know, can still make make elderly and vulnerable people really sick, even kill them, but it's not something we shut society down over. We're talking to Rich Lowry. He's the editor of the National Review. He's the author of The Case for Nationalism. You can follow him on Twitter, at Rich Lowry. My name is Joe Kelly. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. You can join us at 866-408-7669. And, Rich, I want to circle back to to the issue of trust because I cannot help but to get hung up on trust and whether or not we can trust our, our health care leaders and our president and our congressional leaders. Is, is this something that is going to be a game changer for the midterm elections? I mean, yeah, if, if, I if the only way to if, if the only way to be able to trust our government leaders is to swap them out with other government leaders, I mean, is that the solution? It's it's part of the solution. It's not a perfect solution because a lot of this, you know, it's bureaucracy, it's so-called experts, it's it's kind of a, uh, a governing structure that exists out strictly outside of small D democratic accountability. But in Virginia, where you know Glenn Youngkin had that amazing victory. In November, 
the the COVID policies were part of that. It was kind of unappreciated, but the school closures got people really angry. The mask mandates were very controversial. That played into Youngkin's victory. And I think this Omicron wave, you know, one, it just gets to how Biden overpromised on COVID. He just said he was going to shut down the virus somehow magically. Didn't happen. And the the restrictions, if they come back and enforce, will be highly unpopular. I mean, there was there wasn't a huge appetite for them the first time or the second time around. That they, they, they'll be completely toxic and radioactive the third time around. All right, Rich. I I think this is something that people expect at the end of one year and the beginning of the other year. They kind of look ahead and maybe predict what the next year is going to look like. I mean, is 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 twenty twenty two just going to be more of the same? for the American people of frustration, confusion, illness, misinformation, information? I mean, is, do, do, do you expect anything to change in the year ahead? I would think by the end of next year, if, if we're not out of this, that I mean, that's obviously just a, a debacle. I, I do. I'm fairly optimistic about the course of the pandemic. Been wrong before about that. I think the inflation, which is a huge problem, is going to continue to be an enormous problem into the first part of next year. Hopefully, the second part of, of next year has also abated somewhat. Companies have figured out how to get around these supply chain disruptions. But, you know, in the near medium term here, Biden is just in an awful situation. It's not going to surprise me if you see, you know, a lot of polls with him in the high 30s, you know, dunking below the 40 percent mark. And Democrats are obviously looking at a debacle in November. Rich Lowry, he's the editor of the National Review, again, the author of The Case for Nationalism. Rich, thank you so much for joining us, sharing your expertise with uh, Brian's listeners, and I hope you have a wonderful new year. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Joe. Happy New Year. All the best. Yep. 866-408-7669. My name is Joe Kelly. You, of course, are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll get your phone calls coming up straight ahead. Stay with us. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I would stay away from that. I mean, I I have been telling people consistently that if you're vaccinated and boosted and have a family setting in the home with family and relatives. But when you're talking about a New Year's Eve party, we have 30, 40, 50 people celebrating. You do not know the status of their vaccination. I would recommend strongly stay away from that this year. There will be other years to do that, but not this year. It's uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, of course, the recognizable voice there. He uh, making those comments on CNN saying that we should stay away from New Year's parties. Now, first of all, I'm coming to you from Orlando, Florida. We're here in the Florida Freedom Zone. I know that in New York City, they they dropped the crystal ball in Times Square. There's going to be a much smaller crowd there this year than in, in past years. Of course, not last year. Uh, out in uh, San Francisco, they've they've canceled their their uh, New Year's party there. I know in Atlanta, they drop a peach and they have canceled that uh, uh, party as well. Here in Orlando, Florida, we, we actually drop an orange. I'm not even kidding you, but in downtown Orlando, there's a giant orange uh, that sits on top of uh, one of the, the older buildings in downtown. It's about a hundred year old building. I'm not kidding. And there's a giant orange on it. And at midnight, it falls uh, just like it does in Times Square. Uh, but we uh, we still have our party that's going to happen here in Florida. And, you know, for Dr. Fauci to say, you know, 30, 40 people celebrating, man, if they're going to be outdoors, I mean, I was in church here again, the Florida Freedom Zone. I was in church uh, for Christmas Eve services 
standing room only. There was not an empty empty pew, empty chair in the entire church. And we got together and worshiped and and praised God and celebrated the the birth of Jesus. And almost all of us in that church were maskless. There was a couple of people with masks, and I respect that. I didn't have a mask, uh, and I respect that, that I didn't have a mask. Uh, you can hit us up right now. It's 866-408-7669. I'm Joe Kelly, in for Brian Kilmeade. Let's jump to the phones here. We'll go to Nebraska. Cody Joe is joining us, tuning in on the Fox app. Hey, Cody Joe. Good morning. How are you? Great, thanks. What's going on? I just had a quick question. Um, do you know how much these shots cost? How much they cost the recipient or how much they cost the American taxpayers? The American taxpayers. Yeah, no. See, the government always talks about, you know, oh, they bought 500 million of these tests and we're sending so many overseas. And, of course, we are paying for them, but nobody's actually telling us how much each individual vaccine or test costs. You know, and, we and, just know that the government's spending money that we clearly do not have. Right. And Cody Joe, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is I hear these Pfizer commercials on radio stations and TV stations, uh, in, including our radio stations. And these there are Pfizer commercials. I mean, they're, Pfizer is buying advertising time to convince people Crazy, to get their it? shots. Uh, and it's mandated in, in several states. Yeah, but ultimately, yeah, we're pretty, yeah, we're pretty I, free and clear here in Nebraska. I doubt we're going to get a a good deal, a bulk rate on buying the uh, uh, the vaccine from the drug companies, right? I mean, we're probably paying a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I can imagine, and it's just, but that's the one thing, and I have looked and looked, and I cannot seem to find it anywhere. I, like, right. I just want to know what the dollar amount is per vaccine per shot. You know, we're already paying FEMA. We're already paying government officials to administer these shots. We're already doing all this stuff. I mean, there's so much um, Did you paper know, trails and there's Cody so much Joe, overhead to all of this. And I just want to know what the amount is. Did you know this? I bet you didn't know this. Did you know that the federal government will cover funeral expenses for anybody who dies of COVID-19? No, but I have some friends I need to call now. $9,000 is the allotment. So up to $9,000, and so far, about 240,000 people, families, uh, have taken up the federal government on the offer. But that means there's a whole lot more that have not. You know, if, we've, if, if 800,000 Americans have died and only 220-some-odd thousand have had their funerals paid for by U.S. taxpayers, that means there's a whole lot of people out there that could get their funeral expenses covered. There's even an application you can fill out on the FEMA website to get reimbursed up to $9,000. Why, why is it that the American people have to pay funeral expenses for anybody who dies of COVID when we don't pay for people's funeral expenses for other diseases and conditions. Well, why do you think they cut the time in half of the uh, quarantine down to five days? That's well, said it. yeah, that is, that, that is clearly so people can get back to work. There's no doubt about that. Cody Joe, stay warm out there in Nebraska. Thank you so much for your call. I'm Joe Kelly. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show, 866-408-7669. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, I'm Joe Kelly in for Brian Kilmeade. Brian is going to be back with you next week. 
And I am coming to you from the Florida Freedom Zone from WDBO in Orlando, Florida, where today it is going to be 84 degrees and sunny. It'll be gorgeous. And then when I wrap up hosting for Brian Kilmeade today, I'm going to be heading out towards the beach where I'm going to be meeting some family members and we're going to do some pier fishing. We're going to fish off the pier uh, here in Central Florida, just uh, over there by the Space Coast, uh, which is it's beautiful. I'm just digging Florida, love Florida. A little bit about me here, and I'll explain why I, the, this is relevant. So I was born in California, raised in Texas, and live and work in Florida. And joining us now is Florida Senator Rick Scott. And Senator Scott, those states, uh, Florida, uh, California, and Texas – all making big news this week with with some new census numbers. Everybody wants to be either in Florida or in Texas, but certainly not California. Good morning. How are you, sir? Yeah, Jeff, they don't want to be in California. They don't want to be in New Jersey. They don't want to be in New York. They don't want to be in Connecticut. They want to be in Texas and Florida because those two states are the land of opportunity. And in, in, in Texas and Florida, what we believe in is your individual right to figure out how you want to lead your life, and you don't need more government to tell you what the living daylights to do. I grew up in a poor family. My parents had no interest in government saying, oh, yeah, here's the right way because we're so much darn smarter than you. No, they didn't have much of education, but they said, we'll figure this out on our own and quit telling us what to do. My parents hated being told like what to do, and I'm in the same position. Senator Scott, I, I hear people all the time saying, yeah, come to Florida. You're welcome to come to Florida, but leave your politics at the border. I mean, is there any concern that as California empties out and they all head to Texas and and to Florida that, that we're going to turn these states blue? Well, I'll tell you, here's, here's what's exciting. When I got elected as governor back in 2010, I think there was almost 500,000 more registered Democrats and Republicans. But over the last 10 years, we've been whittling away, and for the first time, I think in the history of the state of Florida, we have more registered Republicans than Democrats. And the reason is people are coming here for freedom. They see the difference. They don't want the New York and California high taxes. They don't need you know, Newsom and Cuomo or whoever telling them what to do. They'll come down here. We'll, make, we'll, we'll let them make their own choices, and they're going to do it well. When it comes to the the states making their own choices, I want to pivot pretty quick here into uh, what Governor DeSantis has has rolled out here when it comes to dealing with China. Uh, And that has been a a particular interest of yours as well. Could you address that? Well, here's what I think. The first step is every person has to say to themselves, right, you should never buy a product made in communist China. Unless you're okay with them putting a million people in the prison in communist China for their religion. You're okay with them stealing our jobs. You're okay with communist China taking away the basic rights of Hong Kong citizens. So I think what we need to be doing as Americans, because the real key is going to be what individuals do, is stop buying products made in communist China. But Senator Scott, I'm sure sure you'd 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 recognize that that can be very difficult to do sometimes. Today, it's very difficult. Every day we buy more American products or buy products made from an ally. This will get easier and easier and easier. It's not going to happen overnight, but we've got to say to ourselves, stop helping our adversary. The party, the Communist Party of China, which runs Communist China, is our adversary. They, I mean, they're they're producing fentanyl, and a hundred thousand people died of drug overdoses this last year. A hundred thousand people. That fentanyl is produced in China, brought to the border, 
all right, across the southern border with through the cartels, and the money's collected, uh, many a lot of it through Chinese students studying here because you know what, their party, their government in China tells them they have to do that. That's we've got to stop helping the Communist Party of China. Stop buying products from Communist China. Period. Senator so, Scott, but is, every reseller is the free market going to bring back some of that manufacturing to other nations oh, or to the United States? Is the free market oh. going to do it, or is there going to need some sort of push from the government? Well, the key is always the free market doing it. I think Americans want to buy American products. They want Americans to have jobs. They don't, you know, they want America to uh, to do well. What we've got to get is companies like Amazon uh, and Costco and Walmart to tell us where these products are made. I've got a bill um, that would say you 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 have to disclose the country of origin of all products made. Right. So we, when we do that, Americans are going to buy American products. I mean, we we love to help the people, our local communities. We help our local businesses. We help our businesses in the state, and we'll help our American businesses if we know the products are made there. And I'm sorry, Senator Scott, but is that not already a law? Do do we not already label where products are made? Many a lot of produce products are, uh, but I have a bill. Amazon doesn't have to do it. You try to get on Amazon. I mean, they don't they don't help us. Costco doesn't help us. Walmart doesn't help us. They don't tell us where these things are made. Now, after you get them, the box will say it, Mm. but it's too late. Yeah, I, I, I will. That's that is interesting. You said that because uh, I I had ordered uh, some some months ago. I'd ordered some shirts online, and everything about it looked American. And then it took a while for it to finally arrive, and I realized that had to have been stuck in one of those cargo ships somewhere off the coast of California. And once I got it, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is from China. I thought I was buying American-made shirts, and I realized it was, in fact, Chinese. Right. Possibly from slave labor. And, you know, uh, the, you know, where they put the Uyghurs in prison and they've had to work in factories. Uh, so, I mean, think about it. Communist Party of China. Think about how despicable they are. I mean, they're just a despicable government. And so we've got to do everything we can. I mean, putting people in a prison just for their religion, taking away the basic rights of Hong Kong citizens. If a word comes out of the communist Chinese mouth, the party of communist China, it's a lie. They lie to us all the time. The, the real key is all of us as individual Americans stop supporting communist China. And do, do, do you think that President Biden is, is the man for the job? I mean, I know what the answer is going to be for you, but I mean, is, is President Biden making any doing? kind of inroads he, to he a relationship with China? I mean, he, he does nothing. I mean, he buys ice cream. That's all this guy does. Hmm. I mean, all you see about Joe Biden is he buys he, – he likes ice cream. He likes to ride on a bike with ice cream. That's about it. So think about, think about the Olympics. We should, have, we should have demanded the Olympics be moved. The Olympics are going to be the, – the Winter Olympics are going to be held in communist China, a country committing genocide against their own people. Right. And what Joe Biden say, oh, we're just going to not send as many people there. But but look, I don't want to boycott. It's not fair to our athletes. But come on, Joe Biden, show up. I mean, look at Biden. There's nothing. He, does, he won't do anything about the border. Won't do anything about inflation. Has no idea what to do with covid. I mean, he has chaos in Afghanistan. There's, this guy has no idea how to do anything. 
We're talking to Senator Rick Scott here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. You can join us at 866-408-7669. My name is Joe Kelly. It's at Talk Radio Joe. Uh, Senator Scott, you're also the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Uh, We've been talking about trust and trust of our leaders, trust of our medical leaders, trust of of our political leaders and whether or not we can trust them. Uh, When it comes to the midterm elections, I mean, are we going to see success for the Republicans in the Senate? Absolutely. We're going to take back the majority. Uh, You know, the Biden administration, you you look right now, the people are fed up with what the Democrats are doing. They're fed up with this inflation. So my job, and anybody who wants to help, you can help text WIN55404. But my job as the chair of the National Republic Central, Central Committee, I'm going to make sure everybody understands why your groceries are up, why families in Florida have to go to food banks now. That's because of Democrat wasteful spending. Why crime's up is because the Democrats don't want to fund the police. Why we're seeing our kids taught this anti-American rhetoric in our schools, it's because of what the Democrats want to do. I'm going to do everything I can to raise as much money as I can to define these Democrats and make sure Republicans are focused on, and we're going to tell this Republican story of lower taxes, less government, more freedom, because that's what people want. They don't, they don't want somebody indoctrinating their kids. They want, they want to educate their kids. Senator Scott, I saw that Merrick Garland and the the Biden uh, Justice Department is sending a billion dollars to the states and cities to help with law enforcement. That was one of the things that then-President Trump had offered. He had offered federal help for all these cities and states that were struggling uh, and and had seen high crime rates. And and now the lawlessness that we're seeing, uh, it's hard to believe that this is America. You know, when I was governor— I always thought there are three things families care about. They want a job. They want their kids to get a great education because that's the future. And they want to live in a safe community. If you look at what these Democrats have done with this defund the police, attack the police, when you look at what, they, when you look at what they've done, they've caused in the poorest areas of this country unbelievable crime. So, I, I mean, I feel so sorry for families across my state that are dealing uh, with areas where the crime's at. But where it's worse is in Philadelphia, in Portland, in New York, and all Chicago. These places that have said we hate the police, and that and that they're going at they're wanting to fund them and get rid of them, have some sort of you know some sort of new social program instead of law enforcement. I want I want to fund the police, support our sheriffs, support support our police departments so we have low crime. When I left office uh, in, as governor, we are 47 year low in our crime rate. That's one of the most proud things I was because we supported our law enforcement my entire eight years as governor. We're talking to Governor Rick Scott, and when it comes to the police and law enforcement, uh, address then some of these cities that have mandates and that are firing their police officers at a time in which we're seeing crime spiking so high. Can you imagine what these what they're doing? So they're telling people that want to show up and to, to take care of you and make sure you're safe. No, unless you get this unconstitutional uh, vaccine, uh, we, you can't have your job anymore. Or all the people that worked last year to make sure that uh, you know you had your food, you had your supplies. Oh, if you don't get the vaccine, we're going to fire you now. I mean, this doesn't make any. What's going on in this country makes no sense. We we've got to say. We want people to have a job. We want parents involved in our education. We want to get people back to work. We got to do all these things. We, I mean, just like getting rid. Of, I mean, firing people in the military. I mean, we our military is to defend the freedom of this country. That's what it's set up for. Do that. 
Stop these ma- vaccine mandates. I mean, I, I've, I've been on the center floor so many times trying to stop this vaccine mandate, Biden's unconstitutional, unconstitutional mandate. We've done everything we can. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden acknowledges it's, it's not something that the federal government can solve. It can't. You solve it. You solve it by you making a good decision for your family. And every family, every, everybody's different. I mean, it just makes you so mad what they're doing with this vaccine mandate and how many people are losing their job. So we're telling people that we don't want you to have a job in this country. No, I want people to have a job. That's what I ran on in 2010 and 2014 and 2018 to make sure this is the best economy in the world. We're talking to Senator – I think I called you governor earlier. Senator Rick Scott is uh, joining us here on the Brian Kilmeade Show, and I'm going to ask you the same thing I'm going to ask everybody today uh, is our last question, and and that is look ahead. Look ahead to 2022. You know, I think a lot of us thought – uh, perhaps you know, based upon what our government leaders told us, that that 2021 would you know see the dwindling down uh, of the COVID uh, outbreak, and now it seems as if there's no end in sight. So look ahead to the year ahead for us, Senator Scott, if you will, and and give us an idea of what you think we should expect in the year ahead. What I'm hopeful for is a government at every level, state, local, and federal, will give us really good information, and every family across the country will make a really good decision about how they deal with COVID. On top of that, we stop this, we, we stop this wasteful spending, uh, and when we stop this wasteful spending, we'll stop the inflation, and we'll get people back to work. We allow parents to be involved in education. I think you're going to see unbelievable number of school board changes this next year, because parents are fed up with these school boards telling them, telling them that, that, that your kid, your kid's oppressed or your kid's an oppressor. I mean, that is so crazy. Uh, so, and I hope what we see is around the country, people are going to say, I love my law enforcement because they're the ones that keep me safe. Senator Scott, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you and your family have a wonderful and certainly a safe new year. Have a great new year, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. My name is Joe Kelly. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to get more of your phone calls coming up in just a moment. We've got a line open for you at 866-408-7669. You can find out more information at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Joe Kelly. We'll continue straight ahead. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. By the way, we had a caller earlier that asked about how much the government is paying for each of the vaccines. Uh, we looked this up. The, the Pfizer vaccines cost the government about $19.50 per dose in the U.S., and the drug companies evidently are – uh, uh, they're they're altering the prices for other nations depending on their gross domestic product, how much they're able to afford. So it's a sliding scale, evidently, for other nations. But for the United States, we're paying about uh, just under twenty bucks per dose in taxpayer dollars for all of the uh, the Pfizer vaccines. At least uh, I was a recipient. Of the Moderna vaccine, I have no idea what that one costs. All right, you can join us here on The Brian Kilmeade Show, 866-408-7669. Let's go to Orlando, listening right here on WDBO. Garrett is joining us on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hello, Garrett. Hello, Joe. I live I live down the street from you right here in Orlando. Oh, cool. Uh, but anyway, uh, the reason for my call was, um, was to comment on Senator Scott's bill uh, to reveal country of origin yeah. prior to sale. 
And um, back in the uh, mid-'80s to the early-'90s, I was a senior copywriter for the J.C. Penny catalog. No kidding. And at that, t- and at that time, at that time, we, um, you know, when we were putting the copy together for the catalog, we had to pressure the merchandiser or the buyer to, you know, to give us the country of origin. And for certain categories of goods, like, for instance, uh, for example, for leather goods, we had to reveal country of origin. So if we're selling a pair of shoes, it would have to say made in Brazil or Argentina, sure. so forth and so on. And uh, the comment is, uh, you know, for Senator Scott is that there is considerable precedent for him to, you know, push this bill forward. Well, I know that virtually everything that I buy, if you look at the bottom of it or the side of it or the tag on it or whatever, you'll find a tag that says where it's made. I mean, I thought that was generally existed in the first place. Well, I'm talking about prior to sale. In other words, if you're if you're reading copy on um, I see what's you know, right. So if I'm um, buying something on a website, the website will say this is manufactured in China. Precisely. Yeah, that would be helpful. Certainly, as a, as I mentioned, as a as an example for myself, I bought some shirts. It looked like it was an American company, may have been an American company, but the manufacturing, no doubt, uh, was in China. And even though I really like the shirts, I have I have not ordered uh, a second round of shirts from that company. Let's go to Cheryl real quick, checking in from Connecticut. Cheryl, you're on the Brian Kilmeade show. Hi, Cheryl. Yeah, good. Uh, thanks. It's okay. We'll we'll check back with you, Cheryl, in a little bit. We will continue coming up in a few minutes. We're, of course, broadcasting from the Florida Freedom Zone, where it is going to be 84 degrees and sunny in Orlando today. The theme parks are absolutely slammed. This is one of the most popular times of the year to visit Orlando, Florida, in large part because of the gorgeous sunny weather that we're having uh, today and this season. We will continue more of your phone calls straight ahead as uh, the Brian Kilmeade Show continues. My name is Joe Kelly. You can join us at 866-408-7669 or go to the Show.com. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly, filling in for Brian Kilmeade. BK is good to be back with you on Monday, and I'm coming to you from the Florida Freedom Zone radio station WDBO in Orlando, where, and I don't know what it's like around the, the rest of the country right now, but just as an example, the county to the north of Orange County. Orange County is Orlando. Uh, The county to our north is Seminole County, and the uh, COVID testing location there closed at 10.15 Eastern this morning as they had run out of test kits by 10.15, like an hour and 15 minutes after they opened. They've already run out of test kits, and there are people just rapidly lining up trying to get these test kits and get COVID tests It is truly remarkable that we're this deep into a pandemic and we are still struggling with items like test kits. That just blows my mind that we don't have a grip 
on that and the the notion of uh, transportation problems could be slowing this down. And that's where I want to go here with our next guest. Again, my name is Joe Kelly. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. You can join us at 866-408-7669. But Mike Cottle uh, is joining us now. He is a national transportation expert. He's the president of Driven 360. Mike, thank you so much for joining us here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Good morning, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Beautiful uh, day, pre uh, pre New Year's, baby. Let's do it. Yes. Now, uh, touch on it for, for me, if you will. Uh, just the, the the greater transportation challenges we have. Not so much the infrastructure, uh, but when it comes to getting the products to market. Yeah. So right now, we've really experienced over the last four to five months a real problem off of our ports, mainly Long Beach, Port of Los Angeles. We're seeing a, a massive delay in getting cer- certain goods and services. And it's a trickle-down situation where these goods and services that normally would be offloaded from ships are now stuck in the port. They start out in the water, stuck in the water, and then they can't get into port. Then they get into port. Then there's a delay because the truckers are Half the truckers are working, half the truckers are not working. You just mentioned COVID a minute ago, given the fact that they're mandating a lot of vaccines for these truck drivers uh, in their organization. Some of them said, hey, you know what, we're not we're not going to drive. So you're seeing a trickle-down effect of things getting moved around the country. And as we look at the infrastructure bill uh, that President Biden is trying to push into play for highways, roads, bridges, I mean, it's it's truly a colossal a breakdown for the system and, and how we're trying to get the goods and services across the country. You just talked about COVID tests. I know here in Nashville, we're struggling as well. And you're right. We've been at this for almost two and a half years. You'd think tests would be readily available, but just getting truck drivers to work is part of the problem. You know, and and when it comes to the the infrastructure itself, so we've got uh, President Biden's Build Back Better strategy uh, prior to that, you know, President Trump had fits and starts with his his uh, infrastructure week. I think we had several weeks of infrastructure weeks, and none of them really came to fruition. Um, but give us a big picture snapshot of our American aging interstate highway system, and and the I mean, we're we're looking down the barrel of a catastrophe here if we don't do something with our roads and bridges. Yeah, there's no question about it. If you look at the infrastructure bill, the way it was laid out, $110 billion on spending for highways, roads, and bridges, $66 billion goes into rail improvement, $39 billion on public transit, transit, $25 billion into airports. I, Joe, I had to actually take a, a piece of paper and get a, get a pencil out, something <laughs> that, that most people listening might not even know what a pencil is anymore because these are computers. And I had to write down $110 billion and put all the zeros next to it just to, a lot. to allow that to sink in, the, the amount of money that we're putting into uh, this transportation part of the bill. Here's, here's what's really interesting is that around the country, the main method of transportation, especially during the, the coronavirus pandemic, were our highways and roads. People wanted to get away. They weren't flying. Uh, obviously, there weren't vacations on cruise ships, and you know, a very small percentage of people take trains, so they hit the roads. And these roads across the country, New Jersey is one of the worst in the country. It's like 34.6 percent, according to uh, the National Transportation uh, Administration. They, they are putting these numbers out. Their roads are in bad shape. The biggest one that is a concern to me are our bridges, because that bridge is a main conduit between 
obviously one side of uh, one side of the road to the other, and it's a concern because these things are really starting to, to become. Uh, a problem. And we have seen catastrophic bridge collapses. I mean, people have lost lives in catastrophic bridge collapses. Yeah, there are there there are these problems that we are having, and there are companies that are all vying for government funds to come in and do it. Uh, but but we're not there yet, and and that's you know the the way the administration is laying this out, and the the delays in getting some of this moving forward is is part of the concern. Now you need bipartisan support. And if you look at the pork, you know, the first thing I do is I look at a bill and I see yeah. these big numbers that I just threw out a minute ago. Well, what's the pork in here? You know, what are we what are we going to be spending money on that, that we might want to reconsider? So if we look at it, 15 billion is going into vehicle electrification with 7.5 billion going into just the EV charging side, which is a, a whole separate discussion about how the the administration has laid out what the future of transportation, what their vision is for the future of transportation. I mean, it's truly a situation where you are you are really mandating where the future of this industry goes without taking into any consideration what consumers consumers want and cons- what consumers will drive. So if you look at highways, roads, and bridges, highways, roads, and bridges are the number one thing we should be spending money on to just get the infrastructure to where it needs to be. Well, Mike, as you said, you were using a pencil and you wrote, wrote it all out with all the zeros. Doesn't our interstate highway system need $10 billion in repairs or $100 billion? I mean, it needs it, right? And I, and I get where you're coming from when it comes to waste, fraud, and abuse uh, because any of these massive spending bills is going to be heavily weighed down with matters of waste, fraud, and abuse. There's no doubt about it, and our highways, roads, and bridges are the number one thing in the infrastructure bill that does need to be we, – we need to fix our roads. Uh, we talk about – Autonomous vehicles, they're, they're reading box dots on the side of the road, but if there's holes in the road, uh, there are issues with bridges, they're not going to be able to do the job that, that the, the auto industry is setting them out to do. So we do need to fix our highways. We do need to fix our roads. I always look at it like this. you got to crawl before you walk, walk before you run, run before you sprint. We're kind of skipping some of those steps. So we need to get our roads fixed first. Let's get our roads, get, let's get the money to the state and the local government so that they can get their public works departments out there to fix the roads. In this little community that I live in north of Nashville, I mean, we've got holes everywhere in our roads, and I feel like our state's being managed pretty well, but they need, they do need funding from the government to help get that done. I'm Joe Kelly filling in for Brian Kilmeade today. We're talking to Mike Caudell. He is the president of Driven 360. He is a national transportation expert. I don't know how familiar you are with the I-4 corridor here in central Florida, uh, we've got a massive project, uh, the first stage of which it's called the I-4 Ultimate Project, the first stage of which is supposed to wrap up literally like in the month ahead. This has been a three-and-a-half-year project. Uh, it has cost a ton of, uh, of money, but they're not actually expanding capacity on I-4. They're simply adding toll lanes in the middle, dynamic toll lanes. Yeah, toll lanes are really interesting because – Oh, man. Here's what I can tell you, Joe. We are at a real crossroads in the auto industry right now as far as it, as far as consumers' ability to afford things. So whether it's the price of a vehicle or the ability to pay for toll roads, we're at a real, we're at a real crossroads in the industry right now where if you look at the I-4 corridor, you know, there are going to be pay-to-play opportunities for people to utilize better roads uh, and to get from point A to point B much quicker. Uh, 
I believe the government should be should be really subsidizing a lot more of these new corridors and, and putting the money just into general infrastructure to make the roads and highways better and find and, and creating better ways to to move around potential hotspots on the road. So cities that are congested, I know up outside of Reno, they've built this incredible corridor that goes around the city of Carson City. Now, from a tourism standpoint, sure, does that hurt in some capacity? Yes, but it does alleviate traffic. Around the country, that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, out in California, you've got the toll roads that run through uh, into the Inland Empire from Los Angeles. They call it the 91 crawl because you're always stuck in traffic. The toll roads cost money, though. On peak hour, it could be $10 just to get through one way on that toll road, and that adds up if you're doing it on a daily basis. Well, and then as we make a transition, and if that's the direction we're going to electric cars, you know, a lot of our roads and bridges are funded with the tax on gasoline. But if we're going to use less gasoline for these vehicles, is it time to switch the tax from a gasoline tax to a usage tax, a mileage Tax. I know that there there is you know some some in the trucking industry have been dealing with matters like that. Uh, is it time for those of us with automobiles to pay per mile taxes rather than gasoline taxes? Uh, I I think that's a very slippery slope. You know I, I I always try and drive it down. I I always refer to them as Joe and Mary Smith, the people that li- live in the middle of the country that every day have to get up and get behind their wheel. And sometimes they don't have an option of how far they are going to be driving. They have a job, they have to feed their family. And we always, we always gauge everything in the country based on what California and what New York are doing from the standpoint of a transportation you know, purpose. And that's a very slippery slope to put a usage fee on consumers uh, to, to, tax them in a different way. Right now, the gas tax is, is really designed to help us better our highways and roads. We need to put more money into that as we move towards electrification, which is an entirely, you know, this is something that, that is kind of big brother approach. The president is, you know, essentially said that he wants 50% of vehicles in the country coming off the assembly line to be electric by 2030, General Motors has said by 2025, they want 30 of their vehicles to be electrified. But at the end of the day, Joe, do consumers want these vehicles? So when you think about a usage tax, um, you're basically asking consumers to drive less. And that's a very slippery slope, you know, in our country, especially in the middle part of our country, where people have to use the highways to get from point A to point B. And wait, you asked that question as a hypothetical, uh, as a rhetorical question, but but I want you to answer that question. Is there a demand sure. for electric cars? I mean, I'm, my general sense is, and because I've got a, I've got a 15 year old son that is obsessed with Elon Musk and obsessed with Tesla, and so I hear about electric vehicles all the time from from one of my sure. sons. Uh, but is there really a demand? I mean, it, it, is it the market that is driving? the the hubbub about electric cars yeah so i'll give you these are facts these are just numbers i love being pragmatic about how i evaluate things in the greater transportation world you know jd powers comes out about every three or four months and they provide numbers to us in the in the transportation world of what's happening in the ev market roughly three percent of cars purchased last year were electrified and when i say electrified joe i mean electric and hybrids 
because that's also a form of electric electrification for a vehicle. Remove hybrids out of the equation, you're still just north of 1%. California EV sales are nearing 10%. Electric sales for 2021 are up 133%, but that's still really low. That just means that there are a couple more options in the market. Here's my issue, and I love that your son is into this, as is my son. He's 14 years old. He mm. loves cars. He loves Elon Musk. He loves, he loves what Elon Musk represents, yeah. right? Bucking the system, creating a cool vehicle, launching you know, rockets into space. That's super cool. Here's a really interesting number. According to Kelly Blue Book, the average EV cost is $51,532. That's $30,000 more than the average compact gas vehicle equivalent, which is what your son would likely be into for his first vehicle. $51,000, if you break that down into a monthly cost, this is still a, a relatively rich person's game to play in the EV market. $51,000 is a lot of money when i got to put two kids through college. Now, there, there used to be significant tax breaks and stuff for buying electric vehicles. Is that not the case anymore that would offset some of those costs? So they ran out of uh, the, the funding for that with certain brands, but it, right now the way the infrastructure bill is designed, it, it's to bring back $12,500 in EV credits. So when you look at like the Ford Lightning, that's a, a $39,000 vehicle. They're going to drive that thing down to where it's just under, mm. uh, just under. Uh, we're we're looking at twenty nine and change, thirty and change when you add in destination and delivery. So they're trying to drive the price down. Ford's actually doing it really well. They're doing a great job with the Lightning and the Ford Mustang Mach E. They're making them fun. I will tell you this: you know, electric vehicles are fast and they are fun, but at the same time, we talk about them being driven for the environment and it takes coal yeah. to create energy that, that's that's all so. that that always is that right there in the back of my mind hang on a second mike we're talking to mike cadell he is a national transportation expert he's the president of driven 360 i want everybody who's driving right now to look down at your dashboards and and realize the the fight that takes place over space on your dashboards. We're going to get into that with Mike coming up next here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. You can join us at 866-408-7669. My name is Joe Kelly, and this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly filling in for BK, Brian Kilmeade. He's going to be back with us here live on Monday. You can join me at 866-408-7669. We're broadcasting from Orlando, Florida, right here in the middle of the Florida Freedom Zone from COVID. Yes, we have COVID, but we just deal with it differently than a lot of other states do. Joining us uh, once again here, I want to reintroduce uh, Mike Cadell. He is a national transportation expert. He's the president of Driven360, and I think I've said your last name differently every single time I have pronounced your name, Mike. Um, and I want to kind of pull back the curtain here for some of our listeners that that may not understand you know, what goes into a dashboard in a car, uh, but I can tell you that the radio industry Every year, if not more often, if not every day, petitions the automobile industry for space on a dashboard, much like retailers need space on shelves, you know, so that consumers can use them. Uh, there, There is always a battle over the space that exists on a dashboard. 
Uh, what does the futuristic dashboard look like, Mike? And especially as we hear that that uh, Tesla is now disabling a game you could play on their dashboard. Yeah, well, let's let's start with the, the latter and talking about Tesla for a second. So the National Transportation Safety Administration last week, uh, they're now in their second issuance of uh, a, a situation looking into filing a claim against Tesla for the way they have designed their infotainment system in the vehicle. So it, it was essentially designed, and Tesla's Tesla's you know got a massive screen on the inside of this vehicle. It's, it's Apple integrated, and it's been designed in a way where you can play video games from the passenger seat, but it isn't disengaged for the driver. So if you think about a vehicle traveling at 65, 75, 85 miles an hour and the driver, you know, already having enough distractions with just what's in front of the vehicle, now you've got this gaming situation that has come up. Uh, NHTSA has done the right thing. Yeah, there, there, uh, there's no good Tesla. that is that is going to come out of that. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I know that we're cutting you off here, but we're running out of time. Mike Cadell, he is with uh, Driven 360, national transportation expert. We will continue. My name is Joe Kelly, and you are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. So some years ago, I knew Harry Reid. Harry Reid just passed away yesterday in Nevada. The former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. I knew him when I lived in Las Vegas. My name is Joe Kelly. I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade today. BK is going to be back with you on Monday. You can join me right now at 866-408-7669. I lived in Las Vegas for for a dozen years or so. And uh, when I first met Harry Reid, I was uh, working for a music radio station, not a news radio station. And as a music radio station, you, you kept your relationships pretty simple with politicians and we had convinced Harry Reid to do a number of silly things for a radio station, and, and he, he did them all. He would act out scenes, and he was always kind of goofy. Uh, but, you know, I expect that from, from members of Congress. And uh, in 1996, there was something called the Telecommunications Deregulation Act, and the Congress passed it. President Clinton at the time signed it, changed ownership rules of radio stations, and then next thing you know, uh, everybody's buying up all these radio stations around the nation, and we ended up with a talk station in our building, and I was very, very eager to move into talk radio. And when I did, I tried to maintain that relationship with Harry Reid, and he would uh, he would come on and, and talk about things that he wanted to talk about. Uh, but when I saw that he died, when I, when I saw the news last night that he died, my first thought was, oh, I'm never going to get an answer to that question that I had, uh, Harry Reid, the the Democrat Harry Reid from Nevada, um, when when I switched into news and talk radio, there was a there was a matter that needed his vote. I'll be really honest with you; I don't even remember what it was. Uh, but he had uh, contradicted himself on a vote, and I wanted to ask about it. And the senator became unavailable. As you might imagine, and this is something this is a trick that a lot of politicians do, but he became unavailable uh, when I had a very specific question for him. And then time would go by six months, eight months would go by. And then I get a call from Harry Reid's office once again saying, hey, the senator wants to come on and talk about blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's fine. But first, 
I'm going to ask him about this question that I had for him six months ago. And this is a classic politician line. Oh, why would you want to talk about that? That's old news. Well, yes, it is old news, but because the senator would not answer the questions about it six months ago, it's still relevant, and I'm not going to let him get away with it. Would you believe that they unbooked Harry Reid, and I never talked to him ever again? Rather than answering a simple question about how you voted, he uh, he chose to to just completely sever the relationship so with his passing, whatever the question was I had for him, I will never get an answer to that question now. Woe is me. All right, let's welcome our next guest here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. we got a lot of important things to, to unpack here. Uh, Fox Business correspondent Susan Lee is joining us. Susan, hello. Hey, Joe. I like your story about Harry Reid, and I like the fact you lived in Las Vegas for 10 years, so you must have enjoyed zero income tax for over a decade. I did, actually, which I also <laughs> also enjoy nice. now, living in the Florida Freedom Zone. I also don't have any income tax here. Uh, so oh, I, I, very nice. I seem to pick the good states with no income taxes. <laughs> Why don't you come up here to New York and, and no, no. with the extra city tax yes. on top? Yours are particularly punitive, aren't they? Yes, they are. It's it's tough sometimes when you see how much actually goes to the government and how much you get to keep. Now, I want I want to talk about the economy here with you, Susan, if I may, uh, and something that has been dubbed the Great Resignation. And when I first started, or some people call it the Big Quit, I've seen it called both. And and <laughs> yeah. there's this phenomenon of people just walking away from their jobs. And at a, at a well, time at which yeah. I would think people would need those jobs, but but people are walking away. What explains that? Well, the fact that there are so many jobs available, you've looked at the jolt, what we call the job turnovers, you know, that monthly survey of how many jobs are actually available. And right now it's sitting at a record of 11 million available jobs out there. That's almost two to three million more jobs available than those actually looking for work. So there's plenty of opportunities there. And the fact that people, you know, have reassessed their lives during COVID, do I want to commute two hours? Where do I want to live? Who do I want to work with? And what is my motivation in life? I think that's had a lot of people rethinking exactly what they want to do. So and you, you, know, you are on the money on that one, certainly, yeah. so to speak, Do, do they Susan. want to move down to Florida for great weather, too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I know that a lot of the millennials pick their cities first and then pick their employers second, whereas I I think an older generation would would have a loyalty to their employers and go wherever they said to go. See, that's really interesting because I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues at Fox Business because people of the younger generation, I would say the millennials, Gen Z, I find it very rare to find somebody that's stuck at their or has been at their company for more than 10 years. Yeah. Like that is not exactly you know, abundant because I think during the older eras, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but if you're over the age of 45, you, a lot of people stick with their companies for over a decade plus. That doesn't happen anymore with a yeah. younger generation. Yeah, you know, my father worked for a now defunct oil company, Texaco, for the better part of 30 years plus. And he right. went where, wherever they said to go. And every move we ever made as a kid was because of Texaco. Uh, but but these days, uh, people are a lot less inclined to be loyal to their companies. And Susan, I can't help but to think that this is a good thing that people are reevaluating their lives. I mean, surely there is more to life 
than just going to work every day <laughs> only to wake up and do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. I think maybe we yeah. needed a reckoning with our lifestyles. But we're also very lucky, Joe, because we get to do what we enjoy each and every day. And we get to talk to people, intelligent, wonderful people like you. Well, and we so I do. Think, uh, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we do. But there are people who hate their jobs. Yes, of course. And I think they've had a reassessment of their values as well. And also just to get back to why the younger generation are quitting their jobs or it's rare to find them in positions or at companies for more than 10 years. There's also been a change, by the way, in how they're paid, especially with retirement incomes, because it's very rare also for millennials and Gen Z to say, well, I don't have a pension. That probably went out with the dinosaurs probably 10, 15 years ago. So I think pensions actually kept people at their jobs and at their companies a lot longer for the 30 years that you mentioned with your father at Texaco. So for the younger generation, they're, they're looking at all this debt, this mounting government debt, which they think that they have to pay for, which I think will be true. And also the fact that they don't have guaranteed money when they retire at 60 or 65, they have to go and make it. And how you do that is by switching jobs and getting paid more with better benefits. You know, the the great resignation at first when I when, – again, when I first heard the term, I thought we're talking about fast food workers. We're talking about minimum wage workers. But it's not just no, uh, those no. workers. I mean everybody, every industry, we've seen it uh, in our in our radio industry. I mean there are a lot of people who have reevaluated their lives and what they want to do with it. Yeah, definitely. And imagine if you're coming out of school and you still have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt that you need to pay for, no pension, and you have to think about where you want to be, what you want to do with your life. I think there's been a great rethink, in, especially amongst the younger generation, of where they want to do, what they want to do and where they want to be. Now, Susan, we've heard some of the political leaders uh, that, that, that have referenced the detriment of unemployment uh, income, uh, unemployment benefits, and how that is hurting the job market. Can you kind of touch on that for us? Well, the the thing is with the jobs market is that – and it's not just, by the way, a phenomenon here. The great resignation is taking place all over the world. You, in China, there is a phenomenon called lying flat, meaning that – whether it's the younger generation or even those of over the age of 40, they just don't, they just want to not work as much anymore. You don't have to give everything to your company. And I think there's just been a great reassessment because of COVID. Now, as for the generous benefits, I mean, those expired in September. We're talking about the extra $300 a week, right? And unemployment benefits with most states saying, okay, well, no more of that. But we haven't seen these jobs filled yet. I think people are just taking their time. Maybe we'll see something different or transition or shift in the next year. But people are, are, have taken most of, of the COVID in the last two years off, probably because of those generous benefits and they can get money from the government, but also just to rethink about where they want to be, right? You know, it is interesting because I have heard, I've heard two lines of discussion. One is we are all lucky to have a job. Uh, and then the other line of discussion is now is the time to ask for a raise. And so, so, so which is it? Are, are, we, are we lucky that we have a job or is this the time to ask for a raise? I mean, it can't be I would both, ask right? For a raise. <laughs> I would ask for a raise. Be, you know, besides, despite the fact that you hear about supply chain issues or 39-year high inflation, the economy is booming. And that's because the government has been printing money for the last two years. So money supply has increased by 30%. So all those Benjamins going across the America and the U.S., 
And the fact that, you know, that companies are making record profits, you have the stock markets at record highs, there's a lot of money out there. And there are a lot of jobs, obviously. There's a lot of competition for talent. So, yes, I think this is a perfect opportunity to find what you want to do, work where you want to work, and ask for that raise. Let's, uh, we're, we're talking to Susan Lee. She is a Fox Business correspondent here in the Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly. You can join us at 866-408-7669. I'm broadcasting from the Florida Freedom Zone here in Orlando at <laughs> WDBO, where, where, where it's, you know, it's, it's sunny today, 84 degrees. We have a bowl game this wow. afternoon. Uh, it's gorgeous weather. I'm going fishing uh, in, in 45 minutes. I'm going to go out to the coast and do some pier fishing. If anybody wants to come to Florida to hang out, we'd love to have you. Check your politics at the door, though, if you're leaving a, a blue state somewhere. Um, but, but I want to touch on inflation with you, Susan. I, I generally don't look at gas prices when I fill up. I, I, I buy things <laughs> only that are, that are necessary, right? Like I'm, I'm kind of a minimalist. I'm not an extreme minimalist, but I, I like to think of myself as a minimalist. So I don't buy a lot of things. So the things that I do buy are generally gas and food, both of which I yep. need – so I often don't look at the prices on those things, but I was I was really? recently at a Taco Bell and I was buying one of those party packs of tacos and it was twenty dollars <laughs> and change. And it used to be like like twelve dollars or ten dollars. Right. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I, I, I literally bought a party pack to that I was in a gift to some people that that work where I live. I was just gonna gift them a, a party pack. And I did, but but it cost so much more than I had imagined. I was like, wow, I'm not going to do that again. I mean, the inflation <laughs> is hitting all of us with every cost. But to, to go back to the question about whether or not we should ask for a raise, if we don't yeah. ask for a raise, we are effectively taking a pay cut. That is correct, because inflation is running at 8%. I think wages have increased 4%, so you're losing about 4% if you want to talk about real pricing. But did you hear what Gas Buddy said today? They're predicting $4 yes. bucks a gallon yes. for, for gas at the Next pump year. It, by Memorial Day. Yeah, on average even. On average, yes. And you're, you, know, you were used to paying 2 bucks, I'm sure, for the last two, three years, right? Now I I yes and and I I spent some time in Texas and in Texas they've got things called marginal wells and and a and a marginal well is a well that doesn't produce a whole lot of oil uh but when the prices when the prices go up they start cranking out that oil and oh, yeah. I know that that a lot of marginal well owners are really excited about how high the prices are uh but for those of us who who are on the user end the consumer end uh this sucks yeah. Yeah, that's right. The Exxons, I'm sure, are celebrating. Those at the Permian Basin are working overtime trying to reap some of those profits. But for us, the drivers out there, yeah, that's going to hurt. And did you? I don't know if you shopped for Christmas or if your wife did. did or your family did, but most people actually spent more this year than they had anticipated, $1,200 more, according to the latest survey that we just saw. So prices are going up. People feel desperate that they have to just grab and go if they see what they need because they're so concerned over the supply chain crisis and the chip shortage that, you know, if they try to walk back into the store maybe a week or two weeks later looking for a better deal, first of all, prices might go up and you're not going to get the items that you need. So people are spending a lot more this year than anticipated, and they're going to pay a lot more next year, especially with you know, gas prices still at $4 a gallon we just talked about, and also inflation remaining relatively high. Nobody thinks that this is transitory. In fact, the Federal Reserve has now dropped that term. So high prices are going to be here for a while. And you're also going to pay higher interest rates, by the way, next year, starting next year oh. by March. 
All right, Susan, last question for you. You touched on the chip shortage. And, and by the way, can I just say that I was able to find – I've got twin 15-year-old boys, and I was able to get my hands on a PS5 for my boys wow. for Christmas. And I was so excited. I've been looking for like a year for a PS5, yeah. right? But with the chip shortage, can you address the chip shortage and, and why we're still struggling with that? Well, silicon is hard to come by these days. The largest producers in the world, China, Russia, they haven't been churning out a whole lot of it. So, and and by the way, these, these I, I don't want to get too wonky here, but these prefab, these wafer fabrication plans take a while to ramp up. So you need, you know, you need investment, you need to, of course, break ground, and that's going to take a while. But there are plans in place for the government to and subsidize and welcome some multi-billion dollar chip factories in Arizona uh, upcoming. I think Arizona, there's one more state, I believe it was Texas, but the chip shortage should be easing into at, at least the first six months of this year, according to Micron, which is that Boise, Idaho, large chip maker. And they say things are starting to ramp up. Now, have you actually felt it at the car dealership or looking for a car? Look, you, you know, you've been able to find more cars recently, but that's still, you still have the Chevy Bolt that's been holding up production into at at least the first two months of next year. So, you know, I would say it's probably a gradual process for the next 12 months. But, you know, if you can get a PS5 over Christmas, you are fantastic, <laughs> Joe. My car lease ran out in November, just uh, this last November. And uh, I was like, this is the worst possible time for my lease to run out because I don't want to be buying a car. <laughs> and And the options were very limited, no doubt. Uh, because of the chip shortage. Susan Lee, Fox Business Correspondent, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I hope you have a great New Year's. And if you're down in in Florida way somewhere, be sure and give us a shout, would you? Come fishing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joe. Happy New Year. Come fishing. You got it. Thank you so much, Susan. My name is Joe Kelly. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to jump to your phone calls coming up next. 866-408-7669. You can go to briankilmeadeshow.com. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, I'm Joe Kelly for Brian Kilmeade. You'll find me at Talk Radio Joe. Marlene is checking in from St. Louis. Hey, Marlene, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to talk about our family's experience with COVID. We just had COVID over Thanksgiving. And as you mentioned, it was hard to get testing. My husband and I actually had a false negative uh, PCR test after having symptoms for two full days. Um, Was it a home test? It was was a PCR test. We had a false negative. Mm -hmm. So my husband went back to work, cleared for work, probably, you know, exposing people. And we didn't get tested again for five more days, at which point we were positive. Um, So I thought, okay, I'm just going to slog it out. I had full-on flu symptoms. Um, My internist told me I was not a candidate for monoclonal antibodies. I'm 50 with no known risk factors. Um, Wow, that is really interesting because that that almost um, exactly describes my wife. And and she was a candidate. But I I think, honestly, Marlene, I think they set things up differently there in St. Louis, perhaps, because here in Florida, we simply got in, uh, you know, got into a, 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 an online queue 
and then got in our cars and drove to the facility. We we were not screened as to whether or not we were appropriate candidates because we didn't see our doctor. We didn't go through a doctor. We went through the state. And this is something that Governor DeSantis had set up here in the Florida Freedom Zone that we're able to enjoy. We will continue. I'm Joe Kelly for BK. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, I'm Joe Kelly in for Brian Kilmeade. BK is going to be back with us on Monday. You can join the show at 866-408-7669. Broadcasting from the Florida Freedom Zone here in Orlando, Florida, where today it's going to be sunny in 84. we got a bowl game at Camping World Stadium later today. It's going to be gorgeous, uh, uh, even warm for that. Uh, for those of you in the cold weather states, uh, I'm also going to go fishing later today. I'm going to head out to the Atlantic coast and do some pier fishing with family today here on this. That's a holiday week, right? So we're all just kind of phoning it in today to to an extent, I would imagine. Uh, filling in today for Brian Kilmeade, as I mentioned, I'll be here with you again tomorrow. I want to welcome to the show now retired FBI special agent and and certainly an expert on law enforcement. We can get into more of his his bio here in just a minute. Uh, but John Yanarelli is joining us. Hey, John, Mer- Merry Christmas, Happy New Year- New Year's to you. Merry Christmas, Joe. Thanks for having me. And I, you've got such an extensive resume. And again, we'll get into that here in in just a few minutes. But I, I want to make a confession to you of sorts. Uh, in the beginning, and then I want to get your take on this. In the beginning, um, when when we first started hearing this term, defund the police, I am always open-minded. That's, that's just part of my character. I'm always listening. I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to understand other people's perspectives. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see things through other people's eyes. And I, when I heard defund the police, I'm like, okay – all right. So what would that look like? Let's let's dig into this. And and the notion of sending, uh, you know, psychologists or therapists on calls that might be suicide calls or whatever. I mean, I could see that there might be merit in that. Now, that having been said, as we look at the crime rate today and where crime is going, particularly in those cities where they wanted to or have defunded the police, I'm also uh, uh, inquisitive enough to to know when I was wrong or when it when it, it just didn't seem to pan out. And and is is that the same assessment that you have perhaps come to like 20 years ago? Well, when I started as a cop almost 30 years ago, I would have thought the police were defunded then, based on how little salaries were for cops trying to make a living. The suggestions being made of having mental health services. Those are all great suggestions, but you need uniformed and armed police on the streets to be able to protect people. It's a dangerous job, and when you send these mental health or non-armed traffic enforcement out, you never know when something's going to go sideways and somebody could possibly get hurt. The whole idea of defunding the police is just putting citizens at risk and it's enabling criminals to do what they do. I never would have imagined a, a time in which we would see this kind of organized crime, the smash and grab crimes that we're seeing right now. And it's it's not exclusive to California. It's not exclusive to New York. I mean, we had a we had a handbag store in Florida that uh, they 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 smash and grabbed a million dollars worth of merchandise, and these are organized crews. 
And we're seeing more and more of it. And one of the problems is if you're not going to prosecute, criminals know that they can get away with it. And also it messages likewise to the police. Police are not going to take time investigating and going after these criminals, even if they can be identified, if the prosecutor has made it clear, hey, we're not going to prosecute these cases. That would be a misuse of limited resources. Police are going to put their efforts where they can protect the public and actually get a prosecution. Doing an investigation doesn't do anything to keep people safe. It's the prosecution and putting bad guys away is how you keep the public safe. So if you've got the law enforcement officials out there, but the prosecution is is not willing to keep these people behind bars, I mean, what is the solution? Well, the solution is we need to have prosecutors put in offices that are willing to do their job and not interpret the law under whatever social justice they think is appropriate. It's the job of the legislature to come up with the laws, not for prosecutors to then decide how they're going to apply them. We need to hold prosecutors accountable, and if they're not doing their job, they need to be removed from office. That is what's going to keep the public safe. And, Joe, I think it's still going to get worse before it gets better. We're going to see more and more of this, and it's time that people need to stand up and demand from the government. They're paying their salary. They're paying their taxes. You want cops to do the job properly. You want prosecutors to do their job, period. John, is, is minimum sentencing guidelines the solution? Uh, mandatory minimum, there's a, certainly a discussion for that because in many cases we saw people for drug offenses going away for long periods of time, which really the only people they were hurting were themselves in many cases. So we do have to have that sort of discussion, but we're seeing the same thing where judges' hands are tied. Recently, that truck driver that's looking at 110 years for an accident because under the mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines. Certainly, it should be part of the conversation, especially in acts involving violent crimes or violent criminal acts. But to have it across the board, it could do more damage than good. We're talking to John Yannarelli. He is a retired FBI special agent. He was a member of the executive staff of the FBI's cyber division, a member of the FBI SWAT team, participated in the investigations of Oklahoma City bombing, the 9-11 attack. I told you this guy was really impressive. Uh, John, when it comes to cyber attacks, I mean, we, we know that uh, businesses and, and nonprofits and government agencies have been hit time after time in the last few years with these cyber attacks, and at least from where I'm sitting, it sure doesn't seem like much is being done about it. Part of the problem is there's so much of it out there. Just the average person being victimized, the FBI receives about 22,000 complaints a month from various cyber attacks that have happened to citizens here in the U.S. That's the people that took the time to go online and make a complaint to the FBI. There's probably a lot more. The FBI only has 12,000 agents worldwide, many of whom are working counterterrorism, counterintelligence. Uh, There's only so many agents working cyber investigations. And finally, your average police department is not equipped to do the investigation. If somebody is committing a hack over in China on a U.S. business, there's nothing your local police department's going to be able to do about it. It's the FBI and, yeah. and, and that Secret is, Service. 
that's so frustrating for for consumers because you're you're spot on every time you know, and and we'll see sometimes see those complaints come into the radio station because because they'll think if we can put media exposure on it uh that they will somehow get justice from it uh but i mean there is just nothing that local law enforcement officials can do in this scenario there's a few departments that have some abilities, and certainly those child predators online, they'll go after, and they have good ability to chase them down. But the bigger hacks and the ones that come from overseas, the best way to not be a victim is to not rely on the police and law enforcement, but to make sure you've taken some steps to keep yourself safe. Not just the average citizen, but certainly corporate America. And I'll tell you, Joe, here's the secret in cybersecurity. The average cyber criminal is not going to work too hard. They're not going to try to defeat the fences to get in and steal. If you just take a little bit of effort and precaution to keep yourself safe, they're just going to move on to the next person because there are many that don't do anything at all to keep themselves protected. And so then they're the ones that are going to be victimized. Yeah, you can drive through any neighborhood, and you'll find all kinds of open networks uh, through through any neighborhood you drive through. We're talking to John Yonarelli. John is a retired FBI special agent here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. My name is Joe Kelly. You'll find me at Talk Radio Joe. Our number is 866-408-7669. You talk, John, about protecting yourselves, and you were talking about that from a from a cyber perspective. But let's talk about it from a from a, a broader perspective. One of the things that the Florida State Legislature is going to bring up in the next legislative session is open carry or what they're calling constitutional carry of firearms. It's something that many other states already have. I first experienced it when traveling through Arizona, and I was startled to see so many people with guns on their hips. Uh, but is is that something that is moving our society in the right direction? It depends on the culture of where you live. So in New York City, for example, that would be very odd to see because it's not a gun culture. Now, I'm out in Arizona myself, and it's part of the Old West. It always has been, and people have embraced guns because it's part of running the territory out here and still is to a great degree because of the various open lands. We do have very little street crime as a result because we have a fairly open carry laws. You can even carry concealed out here fairly easily. And so criminals know you don't know who is carrying a weapon to protect themselves. As we see more of the defunding of the police and more cops not wanting to stay in the job, more would-be officers who are deciding, I'm going on to a different career. I'm not going to put my whole livelihood at risk. Open carry, having the right to carry a weapon may be the answer because people are going to have to protect themselves. But again, this is how the world has evolved because of the pushback on law enforcement. Is there something that law enforcement – I know this is a this would be a five-hour discussion debate, but is there something that law enforcement should be doing differently for those for whom they have lost trust in police? What could or should police do differently to earn back that trust? Well, I don't think it's a one-sided conversation. So you have a lot of people who have a distrust in the police – that don't understand the first thing about policing. Sure. And part of the problem we're having here, Joe, is 
Nobody wants to have an actual conversation. So, for example, I'm a cop out on the street, and you come across somebody who may be mentally ill, off their meds, and they're being violent. As an officer, what are my choices? I can't just let the person walk away. I can use my fists and probably get myself injured in the process. I can deploy mace but or a taser, and if that doesn't have a, an effect, which we've seen happen many, many times, what am I left to do? I have a gun, and if the person is committing a violent attack, officers are only given so many tools, and that's decided on by the politicians. They decide. Remember, there was a time when we used to carry what uh, the public knows as those nightsticks, the long batons. But it was not perceived uh, in many communities as, no, that looks too violent. We don't want you using that. Uh, when I was a police officer, I could use a long flashlight if I had to strike somebody. Now that's prohibited in many cities because it doesn't look good to use that as well. Well, you're removing tools from the officer and you're leaving them with a weapon. So, yes, police can always do more things and better things and strive to improve. But we have to have the public willing to engage in a conversation and understand what the situation is and what the choices are that they have decided is best for them. All right, guys, stay with us here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to continue our discussion with John Yonarelli, a retired FBI special agent. And we're going to recap some of the bigger crime stories of, of this year, including Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, Kim Potter, Jussie Smollett. We'll get into that coming up next. Stay with us here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Joe Kelly. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I have formally asked the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, to, with all deliberate haste, detail ATF agents to Chicago for six months so that we can increase the number of gun investigations and seizures in Chicago. The federal government remains uniquely qualified to help cities like Chicago address the scourge of gun violence. That is the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot. Why, I I am old enough to remember a time, I'm old enough to remember a time in which Donald Trump offered to send troops to Chicago, and it was wholly rejected. In fact, let's flash back here to Mayor Lori Lightfoot previously. It is essential that the police department take responsibility for the way in which it's uh, policed and the way in which it has, in many instances, alienated people of color, particularly African-Americans in this city. We live in a city that is traumatized by a long history of police violence and misconduct. We can't rely upon the police to provide public safety. That is, uh, again, Mayor Lori Lightfoot from Chicago. Joining me now here on The Brian Kilmeade Show is John Yonarelli, retired FBI special agent. And it is interesting that kind of like as I had mentioned to you at the top of the hour here, uh, you know, that, that when I first heard of defunding the police, I was at least willing to listen to what they had to say. And that is just not working in Chicago. No, it's not. And it seems the mayor has finally realized that her voting base is the one that's being hurt the most. People are being killed in Chicago on a regular basis. You need law enforcement. I'm glad she's finally changing and wants to use the resources of law enforcement. 
but there's a lot of ground to make up with all the damage that's been done there. Let's, uh, in fact, speaking about Chicago, Jesse Smollett trial was in Chicago, and he was widely believed uh, with his story about being uh, beaten up on the streets of Chicago late at night, uh, only to later it be revealed that that wasn't entirely what happened. And remarkably, Jesse Smollett still to this day stands by his, his fictional story. Well, his story was widely believed by people who have never been involved in law enforcement routinely with every cop I know. We all kind of shook our heads when we initially heard that because it made no sense at all. You know, he's looking at up to three years in prison having been convicted, but I'm betting he'll probably get probation as a first offense. Nevertheless, he still has civil lawsuits to contend with. He's being sued for the financial resources that were expended on behalf of the city to do the investigation. The audacity of this guy, he actually filed a lawsuit against the police department saying that he's been humiliated by them discovering essentially that this was a hoax. That suit was dismissed, fortunately, so taxpayer dollars are not being wasted further. But he's going to have to make amends for what he's done, and it would be nice if he came clean. People will forgive you if you admit you did something stupid, you made a mistake. But he's just making matters worse for himself. I, I Listen, I said the exact same thing, John. I'm like, the American people have an incredible capacity for forgiveness and grace. I mean, we have we as a nation have forgiven so many people for their indiscretions. But if you if you're not willing to own it first, it's pretty hard to forgive someone for something that they won't admit that they did. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We all use bad judgment at times. No one's immune. But you're right. You got to own up. You got to admit, hey, this was a bad idea. I apologize and start to move on. I've only got a couple seconds here, but I want to get your take on Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, obviously acquitted, but now he seems to be really being held up on a pedestal and celebrated. Is is that the proper reaction? You know, I would not celebrate the act of what took place. I think what's being celebrated is people are pushing back. They're tired of the defund the police movement. They're tired of being told you have to learn to be a victim and just give your stuff away. So I think symbolically, but here's a kid that... John, I gotta, I'm sorry about that. I gotta let you go, John, but thank you so much for your take and sharing your time with us. Wish you a happy New Year's. You've been listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Joe Kelly. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.